Okay, I'm glad you're here. <coughs> this is a big day in the in the in the year. This is um, Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni is, uh, as Reb Shlomo put it, um, the the capital of second chances. So, um, just Rebbe Nachman uh, taught that if that every person has the ability at any point in their life, um, especially if, if things are in, especially, in an especially challenging place, to just say, I'm going to begin again right now. And, and we, have that, we have that ability. And um, one of the things that, just as a tool that just getting through life we should sensitize ourselves to, is to be more aware of when we begin to get overwhelmed. Because a lot of times people get overwhelmed and then they react to being overwhelmed. And probably 100% of all reactions to being overwhelmed are negative for the most part. You, you lash out or you get angry or you give up or you take drugs or you do, you do something that's usually um, not consistent with the, with the highest aspect of yourself. Um, and so... So, so if, if, if almost every um, reaction to being overwhelmed is negative, then you don't want to get to the place of being overwhelmed. You want to guard against that. And if you sensitize yourself, you, it's not hard. I mean, that's maybe easy for me to say, because, um, but, but I'll say it anyway. If you, if, you, if you try to be conscious of it, you will become aware when you are in the process of becoming overwhelmed. Okay? And then, at that point, you just have to pause, and you have to say, let me just take it a step at a time. Uh, at that point, it's very important for you to speak calmly to yourself. Say, let me take it a step at a time. It's okay. Let me figure out exactly what's going on. And a lot of times, um, things assert themselves on your consciousness as emergencies, and they aren't emergencies. You know, there, um, there's some teaching, and I'm just paraphrasing it right now, but that there are things in your life that are important and that are urgent, right? And that usually the urgent things usually aren't that important, right? So nonetheless, because you experience them as urgent, you allow these temporary things to sort of commandeer your schedule, and it pushes off the important things. And so you're chasing after details that are presenting themselves as emergencies, which are legitimately manifesting themselves as emergencies. But if you thought a little bit more clearly, and you just sort of took a deep breath and exhaled and everything like that, you'd realize they're, they're not as important as they're making themselves out to be. Right? Which means that you're able to kind of relieve yourself of... Um, of those sort of like um, overwhelming moments. So again, let's, let's review for a second. A person has to be very conscious about not allowing themselves to become overwhelmed. Because when you become overwhelmed, you usually make bad choices. You, you react to the situation and um, you want to escape. And that could be usually um, choices that don't... Uh, reflect the highest aspects of yourself. Um, and if a person can sensitize themselves to when that process is happening, they're able to sort through it 
and avoid that sort of like um, moment where you become maxed out and then where you just sort of like <clears throat> react and seize any alternative to your present state of mind, right? Which will be some form of self-medication, usually. Self-medication comes in many, many varieties. Self-medication just means that um, I need something other than where I'm at right now. And that could be food, right? That could be sex. That could be anything. That could be anything that just like allows you to escape your present, you know, sense of being overwhelmed. Okay. So now the tool is being able to make the distinction between those things that are overwhelming you at that moment, between those things which are urgent and those things which are important. The urgent things have to be analyzed very carefully. I have to respond to this email. I have to call this person back. I have to shop for this event, which is, wait a second, which is in like five days. I don't have to shop for this thing right now, which is in five days. Right? But all these things get swirled around in your brain and they all land and there's a lack of clarity. So if you sort of just do a cold, hard analysis, you'll realize that you're actually probably not under the pressure at that moment that you think you're under. And then you can make better choices. Okay. So, so this idea, the inception of this idea, is as Rabbi Nachman teaches, the ability to say to yourself, I'm going to start again. Right? And a person, when they, when they allow themselves to start again, a person has to understand that, that, this is, um, that this is a great gift that God has put into the world. And that um, it's not tantamount to giving up. A lot of people think if you say, okay, I'm going to start again right now, that means I'm admitting defeat or I'm, I'm just sort of like, uh, I'm, I'm basically giving up. But saying I'm going to start again right now does, doesn't mean that. And this gives us sort of a deeper understanding of, of life itself. And, and we'll, go, we'll go into that now. You see, there's another very important teaching that's kind of floating around the zeitgeist, which is that the, the destination, and this is very much a Jewish teaching, but the, the phraseology of it is, is not from a, a verse in the Torah, but nonetheless, it's 100% Jewish. Mm-hmm. The, the destination is the journey. So, in other words, where am I going? Where am I going? Right? Wherever I am right now. In other words, in other words, that place, that place that I'm trying to get to, this right now is the place that I'm trying to get to. In other words, the path to the place I'm trying to get to is the destination itself. In other words, God is analyzing how are you trying to accomplish that which you're trying to accomplish? How are you reacting to the challenges in your life? How are you pursuing the challenges in your life? That in itself is the great test. 
that in itself is the subject matter of your entire life, more so than what it is, whether you get to wherever it is that you want to get to. How are you trying to get to the place that you're going to? Is the key question. More so than whether you ever get there or not. That's what it means that the destination is the journey. Or, if you can say it the other way too, the journey is the destination. The journey itself is that, that place that you're trying to arrive to. Because you're trying to get to that place wherever it is in a beautiful way. I'll say it a different way. So John Lennon has the famous lyric um, that life is what happens while you're making plans. Right? That's, a, that's another way of saying this. That, that you, you think that, oh, my life is going to begin when I get X. <coughs> But it's the making the plans that's really the life. Because you never stop making the plans. Whether you actually get to those places, those are an isolated few moments, you know? You know, I, I was watching this episode of, of Girls last night because <laughs> I got a free pass to HBO for a limited time because mm -hmm. of the Academy or the Emmy Awards. So I thought, you know, I saw all these reviews that getting good reviews this season, so I figured out, let me watch the first episode of the season, right? So I'm watching it, and one of the characters is getting married. And, you know, they've... I, I watch the show on and off, and, you know, they're... Well, it's all fiction, but their, their lives are so filled with drama, you know what I mean? And most of it is so manufactured from their own neurosis and this, that, and the other thing. I'm not saying in a critical way, but just... Their lives are very, very full. Whether they're worthwhile is, is debatable, but they're, they're very full lives that they're living. And one of the characters who's getting married just looks into the mirror, you know, just dreamily and says, today is my wedding day, right? And then the character that she's married, who's like this like total idiot who you find out later on is about to bail on the marriage on the wedding day and has been, we find out, engaged eight other times and has bailed on every one of the weddings, although she doesn't know that at the time. And it's very unclear whether, he's, whether the marriage is ever going to even take place even as they're all, you know, waiting for it in another hour. You know, he looks in the mirror also at one point, I don't, and he goes, this is my wedding day, right? And it's like, you, you realize, or what, what, what hit me during, you know, just watching both of these characters have this sort of like, this epiphany, was that the fact that it was their wedding day compared to the amount of living that they've both done, it seems almost, it's so minor, almost arbitrary, you know? In other words, in other words these, these moments where we actually aim for, the, the moment where you graduate and you actually get your certificate, or, or whatever it is. These are important accomplishments, and I'm not trying to diminish making goals and accomplishing goals. Obviously, those things are, are extremely important. But when you weigh those isolated days and those isolated symbolic moments versus the amount of living that a person does over the course of their life, you realize that there's, there's a tremendous disparity and that to, to view your level of accomplishment through the prism of those minor, not, not that they're minor accomplishments, they, they can be very great accomplishments, but through the prism of those isolated instances, right, is to really have a very warped version of what life is 
and, and what you are actively accomplishing on a day-by-day -day basis, just getting through the day, just getting out of bed, right? What, you know, remember, the, the, it says in Pirkei Avos, to the effort goes the reward. A very crucial teaching in, in, in Judaism. To the effort goes the reward. The harder something is for you, even if it's literally just getting out of bed and, and leaving the house, even if it's just that, you get tremendous reward for that, more reward than, say, another person who's able to, you know, do something that seems like, wow, that was like amazing, you know? But the person did no work in order to do that, and it was extremely easy for them, and they can just roll it off. But in the next world, when they give out their reward in the next world, the person who was able to get out of bed and get dressed, all of a sudden it's like on a huge level, and the person who did this very sort of public thing, which seemed very masterful and seamless, has almost nothing, because almost no effort went into that. And that's why it says in, in the Talmud, it says that um, one of the, one of the, uh, the, the, the rabbis um, had a, a near-death experience. And, and they said to him, what did you see? Because he came back from the next world, you know? Like, and he said, I saw an upside-down world. The people who are on the bottom here are on the top there. And the people who are on the top here are on the bottom there. And what, what that means is, is that, is that here in this world you have a lot of mazel. Which means that there are certain things that, that go according to mazel. Um, the length of a person's life, um, often whether they have uh, children or not, um, whether or not they're wealthy or not. A lot of these things are part of a person's mazel. Now, we're, we're taught that a person, if they have a very great schus, if they have a very great mitzvah that they've done, they have the ability to overcome their mazel, right? Um, but, 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 we, but we have this concept of, of mazel. And by the way, it's, it's, it's often often misquoted that, that, that we don't have mazel, that the Jewish people don't have mazel, that's actually not said in the Talmud. There are two opinions. One is, we absolutely have mazel. The other one is, which we go by, the other opinion is, we absolutely have mazel, but it can be overcome through, through, through uh, prayer and, 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 and good deeds. So, so even the person who says we don't have mazel says we do have mazel. That, that's, that, that's important, but there's that extra caveat, that extra PS, that you can overcome your mazel with, with, with prayer and, and good deeds. So, so the point is, is that this world, this world is um, kind of, uh, there's, there's, a, there's an illusion of accomplishment. There's an illusion of accomplishment in this world, meaning to say, that there's some people, or the majority of people, who, who look extremely accomplished and who are sort of like the paradigms of society and the celebrities and, and, the, and the very super rich and things like this, they haven't necessarily done anything to earn that. And so they are at the top of society here in this world, right? Or they're perceived as such, right? But in the next world, it becomes a pure meritocracy. Mm -hmm. 
In the next world, you get only what you've earned. And so if, if, great, if greatness came to you very easily in this world, you'll be on the top in this world, but in the next world, you'll be close to the bottom because you did very little to work for that. Whereas there are many people who no one would give a second look at in this world who have to exert themselves exceedingly just to get through a day. Those people are at the top in the next world. So, so really, really, a person has to look at themselves um, very critically, uh, especially an accomplished person in this world has to look at themselves very critically, and they have to make a determination, how much have I actually labored for what I have? And a person doesn't fool themselves. They know when they've actually worked for something and when they haven't worked for something. And if, if they find that they have a lot, but they haven't truly worked hard for it, then that's a danger sign. It's a danger sign for where they're going to be in terms of the next portion of their life, which is the eternal portion of their life. Right? That's your forever. That's your forever. So you want to get it right for that, obviously. Um, so, so again, we have, we have this concept that a person can begin again at any moment. And this is, this is very critical because beginning again at any moment doesn't mean giving up. Beginning again recognizes the reality of this lifetime, which is that we're on a journey. We're in the middle of a journey. And then that's the truth of it. And as much as we prioritize the destination, whether that's the chuppah, like getting married, or whether that's some sort of degree, or some sort of, you know, you know maternity, you know, visit, or whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever those goals are, those are beautiful, fantastic, very worthy goals. But at the same time, a person shouldn't, shouldn't delude themselves as to what the bulk of a person's life in this world is, which is essentially getting through this world and getting through this world in the most beautiful, elegant way as possible. And how do you get through this world in a beautiful, elegant way? So the word halacha, which is, you know, you know, you know, sort of like semi-tragically uh, translated as Jewish law. And by the way, that's not a mistranslation, but it, it's, a, it's an unfortunate translation. Because halacha actually means the way. Right? And you feel like if you understand what that means, the way, the path, if you will, there's, it has much more of an um, Eastern vibe to it. You know, because it's really talking about a, hormo- a, hormo- a harmonious flow through life and how to be in balance with the universe and with yourself and with Hashem and with other people and everything like that. And halacha gives you like a way to flow through life in a very beautiful, balanced way, right? Very organic, beautiful way. 
and the 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 the, the misconception the, the the reason why sort of it breaks my heart that it's translated as as Jewish law is that all the beauty of sort of the idea that you're traveling through life in this elegant, balanced, harmonious way is turned into sort of like this didactic, dictatorial sort of like um, sort of relationship between you and a set of laws, and and it's a it's a it's a very horrible um, misrepresentation of what it means to live a Torah life. A Torah life is a beautiful life. It's a life in balance. You know, I went to um, an event this past week, and uh, it was a, a celebration of Torah at uh, at my son's high school, and it was held at night in a beautiful setting. And um, uh, uh, you know, it was such a beautiful statement. Uh, uh, let me just quote the the person who said it. The the, the host of the event, or one of the co-hosts, was uh, Mrs. Leeds, and 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 she she said to the students. She said, she said to the students and, and the people gathered there, she said, you know, what I'm going to say, please don't misunderstand what I'm going to say, because I have to explain it. She said, you know, um, the people here, uh, the people here uh, are celebrating Torah, and they say Torah is beautiful, or I don't remember what the, the, the exact word that she said. Um, she said, but they don't know. They don't, they don't know the, the greatness of Torah. These kids don't know it. They don't know what it is. Because they're so inside of it, and they've grown up with it, and they don't understand its greatness. Only when a person gets older do they really understand the greatness of Torah. And, and, and that's just paraphrasing her words. But they were very impactful. And I, I remember saying to my, to my son, you know, who's, who's 15, and we were riding home from the event, and I was telling him how much I appreciated her words, and I said to him, you know, you, you really don't appreciate what Torah is right now. I said, only when you get older are you going to realize the many ways people can self-destruct. Mm. You know? And, and if you follow this path, you'll realize that from the time you were a child, you were put into a tank that was guarding you from these paths of self-destruction. You know, but you're only going to realize that when you get older, when you see all the mistakes it's possible to make in life. And then he was like, he was like, yep, you're right. And it was like rare that he agrees with me so <laughs> sincerely and quickly that I thought, wow, okay, something just happened there. But, um, you know, um, but... It's, it's really true, and it, it's one of the um, things that's been very difficult for me, just to speak personally for a moment, as a parent uh, and as a Baal Tshuva myself, which is that having grown up, you know, in the, in the, in the craziness of, of, you know, I grew up in New York City, so I grew up right in Manhattan in the middle of the city and, you know, you know, you know had, you know, crazy times and, and, and all the rest, um, you know, I, I saw, I, I I saw a lot of the world, and then you know when I, I was finally you know I was I was blessed to have Reb Shlomo Karlovach as like a, a Rebbe as like a father to me from the time I was fourteen, and you know he illuminated a, a vision of of really the path of the the tzaddikim, you know, and and I was able to, you know, somehow 
taste, taste that through him. And, and, and I was able to, you know, not on a, on a really a conscious level, but on a, on a soul level, as I was kind of going through life, measure the experiences that I were, was having, which were all fun and, and, and interesting, but versus this rarefied taste of, of, of really the next world that, that I had been privileged to, to, to experience. And at a certain point, I, I just realized that, you know, th- this world can't, can't compare to, to the Torah. It can't compare to, to eternity, to, to infinity, to, to heaven itself. It, it, it doesn't measure. And I don't want to trade the next world for this world. I, I don't want to do that. Um, and, so, and so in bringing up kids... What, what I've realized, and bringing them up in a Torah path, what, what I've realized is, is that they don't know anything else other than the Torah. And all they know is that they're doing this, and, you know, the other people on TV or in the magazines are doing that. And they, they don't have that, 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 that perspective. And I would, you know, I... That might sound wow. Well, that sounds David. That sounds overwhelmingly obvious, you know. But I can tell you that as a parent who hasn't experienced those things, as just a just as a, a first timer, that that took a, a long time to to realize, you know, there, that there, that, that 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 it's it's very hard to appreciate what you have. That is the bottom line, and this goes even deeper. This goes deeper. This is. This is not just applying to this. This is, you know, the, the, the Gomorrah says this about Moshe Rabbeinu himself. And this is a very trenchant insight into the human condition, which is that it's based on the verse where Moshe says to um, the Jewish people, what does God want from you? Right? He sums it all up. He sums it all up into one phrase. Moshe says, all that God wants from you is only that you should fear him. Fear meaning yira. Yira, remember what yira is. It's a very, it's often translated as fear of God. That's an aspect of it, but that's not the depth of it. Right? The Baal Shem Tov says that, that what is yira Hashem? What does it mean, yira? There's a, there's a higher yira. There's a spectrum of it. The, 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 the lower spectrum of yira is fear of punishment. If I do something bad, God is going to get me. Okay? That's lower yira. But on that same spectrum, there's a higher yira. And what's the higher yira? Is the experience of being in the king's palace. And everything is so beautiful and, and pristine. And you don't want to disturb anything. Because you're so filled with awe of like the greatness of God. You don't want to do anything to, in, to interfere in the relationship. Or any, anything to interfere with the closeness. Right? That's the higher yira. And that type of yira breeds love. So you go from this place of awe, of yira, to a place of ava, of love, and that love binds you even closer to the king, and now you want to be even more careful not to mess up the relationship at all. So that increases your yira, and now that you have even more yira, you're even more aware of the greatness of the king, that inspires even more love. And so you have this beautiful cycle of awe leading to love, leading to more awe, leading to more love, 
right? And these are what's called the two wings of the dove, from which a person can fly, which your soul flies. Yira and Ava, love and, 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 and awe, right? So, so this, this, this perspective, though, it's, it, 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 it's not a given. So, so when Moshe Rabbeinu says, all that God asks from you is just that you should have Yira. That's all. And then the Gomorrah says, is it such a simple thing to have Yira? <laughs> like this is Moshe Rabbeinu who was in heaven for, you know, receiving the Torah for 40 days. Right? Like Moshe Rabbeinu had a perspective. He's the greatest prophet that ever lived. It says that Mashiach will not be as great a prophet as Moshe Rabbeinu. He'll be greater in other things, but not in prophecy. Moshe is the greatest prophet for all time ever. So when Moshe sees like as much as a human being can possibly see, right, and still remain alive, when he says all you have to do is, is be aware of God, because remember the Hebrew letters of Yira, if you rearrange them, it means in Hebrew to see, right? Because Yira means that you're actually... You're, 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 God's presence is so palpable, it's so visceral, that it's like you're seeing God. Okay, God doesn't have any physicality. There's no, nothing to see. You know, but, but at the same time, it's like, that's how tangible God's presence is. So the Gomorrah says, is that so simple? That level? Is that so simple? You say, all, all a person has to do, that's the only thing God wants from you. So listen to what their answer is, because again, it's an amazing insight into human nature. The, the Gomorrah says, for Moshe it was simple. And because it was simple for Moshe, on some level he thought it was not that big a deal. And that that would transfer to other people. If it's simple for me, why should it be hard for you? So they, they compare it, I'm paraphrasing, but they, the rabbis compare it to someone who needs, a, only has, um, you know, a small pot and is in desperate need of a large pot, right? For like cooking or something like that. And then they go and, and they find someone who has a large pot. That's exactly what you need, right? But for him, he has a large pot. It's not a big deal. <laughs> it's like, hey, go ahead. Meanwhile, they desperately need it. But if you have it, you don't think it's a big deal. Right? So this is true for all of us. We all have something about us, which is like Moshe had Yira. All of us have this large pot that... For us, it's, of course, I have a large pot. Here's my cabinet. I've got all these things, including this large pot. And we don't appreciate the fact that all of us have a certain gift we just take for granted. Of course, I have it because I've always had it. I'll tell you. And so other people view us as the one who has this thing. But we don't view ourselves as the one who has this thing. <laughs> That's the 
funny thing. Like I once thought of it in this way. It would be a bit of a strange analogy, but just to give you another perspective on it. Imagine you're a baby Ruth bar, right? You're a candy bar, right? But you don't know you're a baby Ruth bar. But everyone sees the wrapper around you that says baby Ruth. So everyone relates to you as this baby Ruth bar because that's what the wrapper says. But meanwhile, you're inside the wrapper. So you don't, <laughs> for you, it's like, you're not aware of the fact that you're a baby Ruth bar. You're just who you are, right? But you're perceived by all the world as being something in particular. But because it's so close to you, you don't even know. So this can explain a lot of the way you view other people and the way other people view you and the way the other people view themselves and, 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 and all the rest. So I'll tell you one, one practical thing we can learn from this is try to figure out what your large pot is. <laughs> you know? Try to figure out what that is. Because it's probably a gift that you've been given from above. And it's probably something that's very important for you to realize why you're in this world and what you can accomplish. And that while it's nice to be humble and modest, you also don't want to be um, ignorant and self-deluded. So let me give you an, an example of what I mean. This would be a, an example of someone who's not humble. This would be an example that I'm going to give you of someone who's an idiot. Okay? Maybe a good-intentioned idiot, but someone who has lots and lots of money and someone comes to them and says, I have a great investment for you. And it really is a great investment. All you have to do is you put that money in there and you're going to double or triple it, Right? And the person says, I don't have any money. Now, meanwhile, they have a lot of money right in the closet there. Right? But because they're so humble, they say, I have no money. <laughs> but that's not humility. That's, that's ignorance and self-delusion. You see, if a person has a particular talent, and they're able to use that talent in a way that will benefit other people and benefit the world. But they want to be so humble, and they say to themselves, I don't really have that talent. That's not humility. That's, 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 that's laziness. That's ignorance. That's low self-esteem. There's a million words for that, but humility is not one of them. So, so again, let's, let's get the, 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 the larger question back. We're back to <coughs> Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni is this, is this great day in the calendar where God says, you can begin again. Begin again. Just begin again. And let me just tell you the spiritual roots of Pesach Sheni, which I heard from Reb Shlomo. And he said, he said the following, you see, um, what's, um, there's, actually, there's actually two explanations for how Pesach Sheni happened. And both of them are amazing in their own right. Okay, One of them is, well, the simple story is like this. The one that everyone knows. 
or the one that's more widely known, is that, uh, is that there were people carrying the bones of Yosef, right? Because um, Yosef, Hatzadik, remained in Egypt and only left when the Jews left. And Yosef said, basically, my bones are going to stay here in Egypt. Unlike his father Yaakov, Yaakov, as soon as he died, he made Yosef swear that he would get him out of Egypt and got him to Moris Hamach Pelah, the cave of the patriarchs, right? Which the Zohar says is the entrance to the Garden of Eden, right? Where heaven and earth kiss. So, but unlike Yaakov Avinu, Yosef said, let my bones remain here with the Jews until slavery is finished because God promised that we're going to be redeemed. And so what's amazing is that Yosef, so to speak, with his bones, like, you know, you say, I feel it in my bones. Like, Yosef in his bones was so connected to the Jews that he was there with them throughout their entire slavery and said, when you go, take me with you. And made them swear. Okay. So, just a beautiful gematria, which is that Yosef, um, is the same numerical value as Zion, Zion, which is Yerushalayim. And remember, Yosef was, during his life, the only Jew in exile, because when he was sold into slavery, everyone else was in Israel. So Yosef, even when he's outside of Israel, his name itself, Yosef, is the Gematria Zion, Zion. Right? So he's connected on, like, on the level of his bones, to the land of Israel, even when he's outside of Israel. And so who would be a better emissary to say, while you're in exile, keep my bones with you, because God has promised to bring you back and you're going to go back, because he himself is Zion. He himself is Yerushalayim. So while everyone is collecting gold from their neighbors, right, Moshe Rabbeinu is, is, is keeping the promise and is finding the bones of Yosef. So Moshe gets the bones of Yosef and then other people are carrying them. And, uh, and, and now we have uh, the Korban Pesach, right, which is a giant mitzvah in the Torah. This is kind of like the, I heard it called like the, like the membership Jews of, uh, dues of the Jewish people. Um, and so it's very important to bring the Korban Pesach. That's the Passover offering once a year. We can't do it now because we don't have a base of Migdash, but God willing, this coming year we'll do it. And, um, and so the people are carrying the bones of Yosef and they are in a state of ritual impurity because they've had contact with the dead. So they can't bring the Pesach, the, 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 the Passover offering, the Korban Pesach. So most people, I don't know, most people, especially since that's, this is the generation that got the Torah, so everyone's on a super high level. But a lot of people maybe would have reacted, well, since I'm spiritually impure, I've had contact with the dead, I can't bring the Passover offering. So it goes, you know, next year. But they were like, what do you mean I can't bring the Passover offering? <laughs> it's not fair. 
It's not fair, God, that you're not allowing me to serve you in this way. Remember, when, when Hannah prays for a child, one of the prayers that she makes, and we learn all sorts of lessons from her prayers, but I'm just telling you one, one aspect. She says, God, you gave me a womb. You're giving me a womb and you're not allowing me to use it? What'd you give me a womb for? So, so, so the, the Jews who were carrying the bones of Yosef were like, we have this mitzvah to bring the Korban Pesach and you're not allowing us to do it? It's not fair. And so they, they ask Moshe about it. And Moshe says, you know, you have a very good point. And this is so awesome because you see the greatness of Moshe. Moshe says, let me ask God. Right? And, and he asks Hashem on the spot. And, Moshe, and God says back to him, you know what? We're going to make a brand new holiday for these people. We're going to call it Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach, right? Which is, as Reb Shlomo put it, the capital of second chances. One month after you normally would bring the Korban Pesach, you're going to be able to bring, you're going to have another opportunity just in case you couldn't do it. And Reb Shlomo said that, you know something? It's appropriate that that this came through Yosef because Yosef's mother was Rachel. And there's a, a Torah mitzvah that a man is not allowed to marry two sisters while they're both alive. You could marry if one, you could marry one sister and then if she, you know, were, died, then you could marry the second sister. But today, ever since we got the Torah, you couldn't marry two sisters while they're both alive. So Rachel was really, Rachel was really the soulmate of, of Yaakov. <coughs> and, then, and then because Rachel doesn't want her sister Leah to be embarrassed, she gives over the secret signs, right? This is a whole topic in itself, to her sister. And so Yaakov ends up marrying her sister. But then it works out that Yaakov is able still to marry Rachel. Right? And how could that be? So... There's very interesting... Uh, well, I'll give you an explanation. But whenever I explain this, it's always... I, I always somehow don't explain it properly. <laughs> but I'm going to try to make it clear. I'm going to try to make it clear because the opter the the Rav, right? So one of the, the, the greatest of the Hasidic masters. The Oy of Yisrael. That was the name of his sefer. So he explained, he explained it like this. Things like this, like this, okay? Which is, I'm going to try to put in my own words, hopefully this will be clear. Every mitzvah has a body and a soul, okay? So, in other words, the, the soul would be the particular um, defining energy of the mitzvah, right? That's the, the soul of the mitzvah. But then you have this outer garment, which is the body of the mitzvah, which is how, you, how you're able to access that energy, so, for instance, um, tefillin has a particular energy to it, right? But in order to access that energy, you have to put on the physical boxes on your body. Is that clear? Okay. So, when did those things come together? That the body of the mitzvah and the soul of the mitzvah came together as one unit. Like, in other words, I can't... Um, I can't, uh, whatever, contemplate in my mind the mitzvah of tefillin 
and access the energy of tefillin. I can't. Because the body and the soul are have been cemented, right? The only way I can get to that energy of tefillin is by putting on the body of tefillin, if you will. Right? Is that clear? Mm-hmm. Okay. That happened at Mount Sinai, where the energy of the mitzvot became encased in particular garments, right? If you want to, if you want to be able to um, do a mitzvah, you have to do the garment of the mitzvah, which would be the particular practice of the mitzvah. If you want the energy of lighting Shabbos candles, you can't get that by going to a great movie sundown Friday. Right? You can't access it that way. You have to access it through the physical act itself, through the body of the mitzvah itself, which is actually lighting a candle at the proper time. Is that clear? That wasn't the case before Mount Sinai. That wasn't the case before Mount Sinai. Before Mount Sinai, you could access the energy of the mitzvah without going through the body of the mitzvah. So the Opter Rebbe actually says that Yaakov Avinu kept the mitzvah of not being married to two sisters even while he was married to two sisters. <laughs> because he was able to access the energy of that mitzvah of not being married to two sisters a different way. I'll give you a more precise example, okay? Which was that the Ari brings down that when Yaakov Avinu was peeling sticks, do you remember he was peeling sticks by the trough in order to make sure that the animals that were mating by the watering hole would be speckled and that those, the, those sheep would go to him as opposed to Lavan, right? So the Ari brings down that when Yaakov Avinu was peeling the sticks, he was actually doing the mitzvah of tefillin. So there's an example of before Mount Sinai, you could access the energy of a mitzvah, but not through the body of the mitzvah as we know it today. Today, in order to put on, to get the energy of tefillin, you have to put on the boxes. But before Mount Sinai, it wasn't locked in place so that you could access the energy of the mitzvah a different way. Is that, is that clear? Is that, do you, does that, you follow? Okay. So this is how the Optor Rebbe explains Yaakov Avinu could be married to two sisters while still keeping the mitzvah of not being married to two sisters. Because he was able to access the essence of the mitzvah of not being married to two sisters a different way. Other than not marrying two sisters. <laughs> is that clear? Mm-hmm. Okay. No. You say no. Okay. Well. That's the best I can do. <laughs> you, have to, you have to think about it. Yeah, you have to think about it. Um, the, it would be clear if I could tell you how he did the mitzvah of not marrying two sisters. I don't know what act he did. He did some act, just like peeling the sticks was like for the tefillin. He did some act. I don't know what it was which allowed him to access the mitzvah of not being married to two sisters. I don't know what that act was. I don't know what that act was. I know in the case of tefillin that he did it through peeling sticks. Right? Okay? Um, 
And, and I remember, you know, one of the most exciting, one of the most exciting things I've ever read in my life is, is Rabbi Nachman's account of going to Israel. And believe it or not, I mean, you know, it was literally, you know, they say that, um, see, a lot of people, when, when they want to start to do tshuva or start coming close to God, um, they think that, well, many miraculous things happen to everyone who starts the process. There's, there's no question. However, there are also many obstacles that come. Because as Rebbe Nachman explains, if a person wants to really get closer to heaven, there's something that, a voice that goes out in heaven that says, oh, this person wants to come close. We'll see how much he really wants to come close. <laughs> and they put obstacles in the way. But if a person knows the secret, a person won't get discouraged. And a person will understand that these obstacles are, are sent in a divine way for the person to overcome them, right? Explaining this, I once heard Reb Shlomo say that, and these were the words that he used, he said that it's not every person who gets interviewed for the job of being Secretary of State of the United States. You know, Secretary of State is one of probably even more important positions than Vice President of the United States. It's a it's, it's in many ways, it can be the president's right-hand man and most important policymaker. They're making all of foreign policy, basically. Or they're the chief advisor in all of foreign policy, right? Which means wars, which means peace, which means many, many things. It's not every person who gets interviewed for that job. So when you understand, that's, that's how Rip Shlomo phrased it. This idea that when a person wants to come close to the king of kings, right? Hashem you know, some tests come down. You say, well, who is this person? Who is this person who wants to come close? Um, so Rebbe Nachman, as he was trying to go to Israel, now this was like, like, like a Mashiach dick thing, like the, the idea of one of the greatest tzaddikim going to the land of Israel itself. Do you want to know, you can measure his greatness by the magnitude of the tests that he faced. So do you know, as he was, what they would do is, since he was in Russia, they would go from Russia to Turkey. And from Turkey, they would take, they would sail on a ship to Israel. That was the route that they took. So in, when he left from Istanbul to, to, to sail to Israel, it was in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. Can, can you imagine? Like, there were Ships like firing cannons like across the bow as he's going to Israel. The middle of the Napoleonic Wars. So so Rebbe Nachman was thinking like, you know, he's on the ship and it's like there's a war happening around him. Like what's he and and, and he records that you know what, if somehow I survive but my tefillin doesn't. And this is part of his account. He says, what I'll do is, I'll peel sticks like Yaakov Avinu did. <laughs> and that's how I'll do the mitzvah of tefillin. <laughs> now, of course, you know, this is, we can't do this today, then this is Rabbi Nachman. But this is Rabbi, this is Rabbi Nachman's thinking, you know? So, so let's, let's get back on track. Rabbi Shlomo said that it's, it's very um, appropriate, that's not the word he used, but very appropriate that, 
that Pesach Sheni should come through Yosef because Yosef is the son of Rachel. And Rachel is the one who basically had no chance at all because she gave her sister to her soulmate, right? <coughs> she gives Leah to Yaakov. And there's a mitzvah in the Torah that says a person can't be married to two sisters. And yet, Rachel is still able to marry Yaakov. Which means somehow she opened up a second chance. She's able to open up a second chance in heaven. And so she has a child, Yosef. And it's through the bones of Yosef that the whole thing becomes revealed and flows to the rest of the Jewish people, this idea of second chances. So... Remember, we've been, we've been saying it over and over again, but it's just, you can't understand life without understanding this Torah. And I'd love to find a gematria. I didn't have enough time to prepare it for this. But I'm sure there's a, a gematria that relates some key words of Pesach Sheni to Breshis. Because Breshis, remember, Reb Shlomo says in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Breshis means not in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but with beginnings. Out of beginnings, God created the the heavens and the earth, right? Meaning to say that every single moment is a new beginning. And so Pesach Sheni, viewed in this context, is a further development of creation itself. In other words, it's a further revelation of what's already there, of what's already there, you know? And it, it, it concretizes it in a beautiful way. Um, so, so let's just review. Um, don't get overwhelmed. When you get overwhelmed, you make bad choices. And the way not to get overwhelmed is to sense that you're becoming overwhelmed. Be aware of it. It, it, it usually happens in a fairly slow motion process. It doesn't just happen that you're overwhelmed. You, be, you, be, you become overwhelmed. It, it hints, that just the phrasing of it, hints at a process. Then... Look at what's on your plate at that moment. Make the distinction between the urgent and the important. See through the illusion of the urgent, because a lot of the urgent isn't as much of an emergency as it's presenting itself to you. Allow yourself to reclaim calm and peace of mind. And then you're able to avoid all the negative reactions. If you do become overwhelmed and you're not able to catch it in time, tell yourself, I'm going to begin again now. Okay? And that's not admitting defeat or failure or giving up. It's recognizing that all of life is a journey. And that the journey of life is actually the essence of life. And that the goals that we set, all these graduation type of landmarks that we set for ourselves are very worthy 
and very worth pursuing. But at the same time, it can be a false barometer for the what we're actually accomplishing during our lifetimes. Because as it says in Pirkei Avos, to the effort goes the reward. And the effort is the thing that we're going to be judged on and given in the next world. Right? And that the harder that we work in this world for whatever it is, that that is really the essence of what we'll be known for and what our legacy to ourself and to the entire heavens will be after this lifetime forever. Not what we accomplished, because a lot of what we accomplish in this world is mazel-based and is not effort-based. And so don't view yourself with a bad eye. You know, as, 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 as I heard beautifully, oh my goodness, I love this so much. I love this so much. It's a, it's a, it's a Kanye lyric, actually, right? Mm-hmm. He says, he says uh, I'm not my mistakes. Or you're not your mistakes. You're not your mistakes. A lot of people, if you, if you ask them to tell you who they are, they'll tell you, I'm the one who didn't did, do this, and I'm the one who didn't do that, and I'm the one who did this, and I'm the one who did that. And they'll, they'll tell you. They'll, they'll, they'll record to you their greatest failures. And you're not your mistakes. You're not your mistakes. And you, you can't allow yourself to define yourself by your mistakes. You cannot do that. Because that's a, a, another version of not recognizing the journey. It's, a, it's, a, it's another version of measuring yourself just by the destination points. And like we were saying, like, you know, like, like that, that TV show I was watching, this is my wedding day. I mean, mazel tov, it's great. I, I, I'm happy, I, really. You know, it's something to celebrate. But at the same time, it's like, it's, it's a few hours versus a lifetime, really? Really? So, so appreciate, appreciate the journey and understand that if you want to go through the journey beautifully, that this is halacha. That's what halacha is. Halacha is the flow. It's the way. It's the way to, to, to put yourself in that tank, as we say, right? Although that's a bit of a military bit of imagery, but I'm saying in terms of guarding and protecting yourself, but it's also much more beautiful than that. You know, I was thinking, I, I don't know if you ever saw that picture of the, the Rolls Royce from the 60s. I think the Beatles had it, which was painted with all the psychedelic Paisley designs, mm-hmm. right? It's like, that's halacha. <laughs> it's like, you're going, you're going through life in like this like Paisley psychedelic painted, you know, Rolls Royce, basically, okay. you know? That's what it is. And, 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 and if we can just see the beauty of that, then we can really like maximize like the beauty of every single day. Here are some questions and answers. Is there some things that gives us some talents, some abilities that it feels like we're, we can do them easily and we have a lot of power and flow when we do them. And in some ways... It seems like that's a little bit counter that to, to the effort goes the reward. I mean, does that mean that some of these activities that we feel more connected to, that we can do more easily, that we don't get as much reward in that? Or, you know what I mean? Because... I totally do. So, so I'll, tell you, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, the greatest people, 
if you look at the people who are in the um, history books, right? There are people, like, I, I've, I've noticed that they're the people who had the greatest talent in that particular area and worked the hardest. That is a formula for greatness. Yeah. So the, the trick is that just because you're good at something or something comes easily, that you don't allow yourself to prepare any less for it or work any less hard for it. So, so when you have a talent for something and you're also working very hard at that particular thing, then that's a beautiful combination. That's when it really starts to sink. The, the problem is, is that so many people, myself included, when something comes easily, then they don't do any work in that area. Mm-hmm. And then that's when you really um, start to get the disparity of this world and the next world, where someone can seem to be important in this world and in the next world they, they really lose their stature. Right. Because the next world, as we said, is a, merit- a meritocracy. And it's, it's, it's an, an, in fact, I'll, I'll make up a new word, an effortocracy. You know, it, it's based on, it, it's all effort-based. Yeah. And that's the real world. It's called Olam HaEmes. You know, it right. means the true world. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, even if I'm here yeah, I tried to summarize it at the end. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I mean, you got the... I, I, I'm here for the last third, yeah. I always get something, yeah. so if you yeah. allow that. Yeah. Um, Secondly, boy, the overwhelming thing, I mean, as soon as you said that, I realized I've spent a lot of my life overwhelmed. And sometimes my hard work is just trying to get myself to get to the hard work. So, okay, that's that's what's in front of me. So I'll keep chipping away at that. But my question is about, you know, you say that it takes the actions to access the energy. Yes. And as you know, I'm still a relatively new kid on the block. And I've done a lot of the things <coughs> that supposedly access the energy. Like I've laid the tefillin and I thought, okay, I put a box on my head. Or I've gone to the wailing wall and I thought, oh, all right, this is kind of cool to see this old place with all the people doing the thing. And, um, a long time ago when I was looking into being a Hindu, my then girlfriend at the time wanted me to meet this guru that she was so utterly enamored of. And I met her and I was like, gee, what a nice lady. And um, my experience has been like, you know how sometimes there's a movie that you didn't like it when you saw it, but you keep watching it because for some reason you want to see if this time you'll get something out of it? That's been kind of my experience, because obviously I keep coming back, but if you don't feel that energy, I mean, are you supposed to get that hit right away, or does it take, you know, working at it? So I once, I once sort of like, uh, so this is a very fundamental question that you're asking, very, very essential, and I remember I once I called it bad math, and what I'm what I meant by that is that a lot of people make this equation, which is that God is as close to me as I, as I feel His presence, and I think that's bad math, 
meaning to say that we're immersed in godliness. We're immersed in the mitzvah. We're immersed in it. And whether we feel it or not, or whether we have this um, epiphany or not, is uh, beside the point. It's, it's nice if you can have it. But it doesn't, it's not the defining quality of whether it works or not, or whether it's, it's, it's whether, the, um, whether, the, uh, whether the soul has benefited from it, or whether the world has benefited from the light from your soul that you've admitted by, by doing it. Um, uh, I'll give you two examples. Um, one is from my father, and one is from Rebbe Nachman. So I probably should give the Rebbe Nachman one first. So... <laughs> Uh, so Rabbi Nachman says, uh, talks about how Naaman, who was uh, the Syrian general, so he was really like one of the great enemies of Israel. Like he, but he got saras, he got this, this leprosy, and he tried every cure, and he couldn't get this leprosy off him. And he had a Jewish slave who he had sort of, you know, gotten in conquest and this Jewish slave kept on telling him, you should go and see the prophet Elisha, right? And, you know, as you can imagine, like a, a great enemy of, of Israel, right? Like a, a military adversary, like he doesn't want to go and see a Jewish prophet, right? Because that would be very humbling and it would be hard for him to do. But he tried so many cures and none of the cures worked. He was desperate enough that he went to see Elisha. So he goes to see Elisha. And Elisha tells him, go and dip, like, like, a, like a mikvah, like go and dunk, bathe in the, in the Jordan River seven times. Like just go up and down seven times. So he, he says, you know, that's the advice that I get. Like, you know, it's ridiculous. I don't want to do it. And the, his Jewish slave said, no, 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 yeah, yeah, ooh. you have to do it. You have to do it. Um, so... He goes, okay, I came this far, and he does it, and he's cured. So what Rebbe Nachman brings out, and I'll tell you another story which makes this point uh, again. Uh, well, let me tell you. So my father, Elavashalom, said, tells that, um, you know, back in the day, we don't have it so much. It's a bit of an old-fashioned uh, thing. But back in the day, if someone got a, a cut, they would put iodine on it, right? Like as kids, we probably remember that. And the iodine would sting, it would burn. Like you put the drop on it and it would be, ah, you'd scream for a moment and then it would be okay. But it would sort of clean out the, the bacteria. Um, so because everyone hated the sensation of when iodine went onto an open cut, someone made an iodine that didn't sting. And no one bought it because they said it can't be working if it doesn't hurt. <laughs> no pain, no pain. Yeah, it's got to hurt to work. So this is what Rabbi Nachman is trying to bring out, that a lot of times we think that there has, it has to hurt to work, you know, and, and it doesn't have to hurt to work. And you don't have to experience some sort of like your soul is flying and everything like that when you put on the tefillin to validate the truth of the mitzvah of tefillin. And, and if you do, great, but if you don't, that is not the barometer. The barometer is that Hashem has commanded you and that you are ceding to the command, that you're serving God in this way. And it's amazing that over time, relationships develop and, 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 and a love deepens. And, and, and you have to trust in, in, in the, 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 the centrality 
of, of the mitzvot and, and how much they're just sort of embedded in, in the consciousness of the world and of your soul, that, that these things will become meaningful. And even if they never do, they will, but even if they never do, that that is not the litmus test of, 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 what, of, of, of what is being transacted. Um, it doesn't have to hurt to work. And the corollary, it doesn't also have to be, you know, mind-blowing to be meaningful. 